My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach and author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. I've known today's guests for many years, a dynamic, energetic, and highly successful entrepreneur who has built his experience through a number of high-profile, high-growth startups. I've been keen to bring him on the Unlock Moment for a while. Ben Prouty is the co-founder and CEO of Poncho, a platform that is making childcare more accessible and affordable for parents across the UK. Poncho was developed while Ben was an entrepreneur in residence at Camet Ventures, a 100 million euro venture builder backed by AXA. Prior to Poncho, Ben was co-founder and CEO of Shepa, an on-demand asset inspection service funded by Aviva. Shepa is Ben's third startup, having previously been a part of the early teams at the car-sharing startup Streetcar, acquired by Zipcar, and also Lovespace, the UK's first storage-by-the-box service. I love having entrepreneurs on the podcast. Ben has been on an amazing journey, figuring out how to build teams and scale businesses rapidly, and also about himself as a leader. I'm looking forward to hearing all about what he's learned along the way. Ben Prouty, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you for having me, Gary. Very kind introduction. So tell tell me where this entrepreneurial spirit first started for you when you were growing up. Well, it's been a it's been a bit of a journey, Gary. Uh, it's certainly not been a been a linear path. Um, you know, I've uh, firstly, I guess, like, you know, I've grown up all over the all over the world. Um, if anybody's trying to sort of pin down the the weird accent, I'm half American, half English, but spent a lot of time in, in Germany and Belgium as a as a child before coming back to the UK for for high school. So, I guess you know, from an early age, being very adaptive, being used to sort of thrown into environments that are, that are changing rapidly um, and, and having to adjust to those was sort of perhaps the first grounding in, in entrepreneurship. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of career and where I thought I was headed, um, always thought banking is where I was going to go simply because my father was in banking. You know, he worked at Bank of America for 25 years, which is, you know, unheard of today that somebody stays in, in one corporate for that long. Um, but, you know, I, I saw that he enjoyed it. He had a good life. Um, we lived well. So I thought, okay, well, I guess it's banking for me. So actually, I ended up doing internships while at university, um, one notoriously at, at Lehman Brothers in investment banking. And it just didn't sit right. And I thought, gosh, you know, is this, is this really what my life is going to be like? I've got to be this cog in this, in this big machine with a pretty awful, awful, uh, you know, corporate culture. Um, but I just figured, well, I guess this is just, you know, what people do. You just, you know, you go into work and you don't enjoy it, but you make plenty of money. Um, but it, it just didn't sit right. And I, I just, I just couldn't pursue a, a career in, in, in that space. So I thought, well, look, you know, what else do I like? At least if I 
go into work every day and, and I enjoy what that company sells or the service that it provides, um, at least then I'll be happy whatever I'm doing or whatever size the company. So I just sort of started building a, a list of, of the things that I enjoy. Um, and, you know, I'm a big car fan, anything sort of automotive, anything that moves, I, I love it. So I'd, I'd heard about this, this company that was just starting out called uh, Streetcar and, you know, seemed like an incredibly novel idea, especially when you sort of cast your mind back to 2006, the, the idea of cars being parked on the street and you're accessing them, you know, by way of touching a card on the windscreen. So I'd, I'd reached out. They were a small team just, just starting out um, and just said, well, look, just I'll, I'll do anything. And, and they just started hiring. They'd just taken in some money. Um, I went down there to, to meet the, the founder, one of the founders, uh, Brett Acker. And, you know, we were sitting in this, in this crappy office space. Uh, sorry, Brett. Um, you know, down in South, South Wimbledon, not far from, I think, Gary, where you visited us later on, um, at, at Love Space. And, you know, there was, there was water leaking through the ceiling, um, in, in, in the boardroom, as they call it. And I still felt incredibly comfortable there. Um, I was thinking, God, these, these are some smart guys. They're down here thinking that this is going to be the next big thing. Um, you know, these surroundings might not be quite what I was used to in the, in the banking space, but this just feels, this feels right. Um, and I, I never really looked back, back since. Um, you know, I, I later did my MBA and flirted very briefly with the idea of going into, into consulting at one of the, the big consulting firms. Um, but again, just decided that that wasn't being true to myself if, if I went down that path and ended up getting back onto the, into the startup world again. So, you know, I think, um, I, I got quite lucky, I suppose, that I, had exposure to a very successful startup early on in my career. Perhaps if the streetcar experience hadn't been what it was, then maybe I would have jumped ship sooner um, and, and, and never looked back. But it, it was a success. I did enjoy it. And, and really, things just snowballed from there. And I, I frankly think I'd probably be unemployable now in the, in the corporate space, um, given, given everything I've done in the startup world. And paint a picture for me of you know, that first day when you walked into that boardroom with with water dripping through the ceiling and you were you were in a banking role at that time so you had to you had to resign from a no i just i had just left i had just left yeah so, you, so you'd already made a decision to to move on um did that help do you think to take on something that felt like a higher risk thing to do the fact that that you weren't having to give up something to go do it yeah, exactly i mean i i, I just knew that the, the the banking role was so not me that I'd rather do nothing than do that role. So I, I'd taken that decision to to leave, um, but yeah, it, it, it didn't it didn't feel risky going into into the role with with streetcar because I thought at an you know absolute worst case scenario here is that um, you know it doesn't it doesn't take off, but I will have enjoyed the experience and I, I knew I was going to learn a huge amount um, by virtue of the, the size of team, the exposure I was going to get to all of the different functions. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a bit of a roll of the dice, but I also think, and I, you know, tell everybody this, when I speak to you, that's out of that age, you know, I was, I was 22. You can afford to take a year and for it to be a complete failure. You can, you know, you can do that in your late 20s. You can still do that in your 30s. I mean, it's, there's, there's, there's plenty of time. Um, I think at the time didn't necessarily feel that way. You know, I'd, um, plenty of my, my peers were in great, you know, graduate roles in, in, in banking and insurance and, you know, definitely felt like, quite an outsider taking that role. Um, and certainly the startup scene and going into startups wasn't what it is today. Um, today, it's kind of an understood thing. Back then, it was just a, a small business without a lot of money. 
um, it wasn't trendy or cool to, to, to be a founder or to be in the startup space. And what did you do at 22, walking into this business, you know, for the first time? What, what were the kind of first things that you were asked to, to do in your role? <laughs> everything, everything, basically. So, I mean, they structured it very well, actually, um, with, with hindsight. Um, I think they positioned it as, you know, the opportunity to get exposure to all of the different departments with, with a view to then leading one of those de- departments within a year. Um, but actually, it was, it was a great means of, of getting hungry young grads like myself to, to come in and, and effectively do some, some pretty mundane roles um, and some pretty challenging roles at the same time. Um, so, you know, I was, I was going in at, at 7 a.m. Um, and on a Saturday and, and picking up phone calls um, and, and dealing with all the issues that we had overnight because, you know, the, the phone lines were shut between 10 and 7 a.m., but the business continued to run. So there were cars out on the street. There were people, you know, experiencing issues, not being able to find cars, leaving them in the wrong place, cars getting towed. So you'd come in at 7 a.m. and, you know, there'd be a, a whole voicemail full of, of, of issues that you'd have to deal with and the phone start ringing for the next day. So I'd be doing that. I'd be trying to find new locations for cars as well as part of our big growth plan, uh, you know, participating in business development on the B2B side of things. Um, so, so really everything, um, which, was, which was really fantastic. And what was the moment for you, or was there a moment when you were like, you went from this is a really cool job to this is something that I want, this kind of thing is something I want to make my career? Yeah, I don't think at that stage, I, I quite was able to put the pieces together. Um, I certainly sort of looked at, at, at Brett and Andrew, the, the founders, and thought one day I would like to be in their shoes, building my own business. But at that point, I, I couldn't quite see the path through to that. Um, I, I certainly felt it would be too premature for me to, to go and build a business entirely on my own post that experience, um, certainly during it. Um, so I think, yeah, it was, uh, it was hard to see. I think at, at that point, I certainly wasn't thinking in terms of careers. I was thinking in terms of this is, this is one more experience, um, a successful one that hopefully will lead to, to opening the door to, to getting exposure within another similar, um, startup journey, which then ultimately should hopefully lead to, to me being able to build my own business, having built a, a reputation and been able to, to get financing. And, and Streetcar had a successful exit to, to Zipcar. It did. It did. It exited to, uh, to Zipcar. Zipcar came in and tried to, to compete for a, for a number of years, but ultimately ended up acquiring Zipcar. And then Zipcar ultimately got acquired by, by Avis for, for a few hundred million. There's a great, great story in there somewhere around you know, large corporates waiting too long to, to do things and ultimately having to pay the, the price to do so. And so... From there, you moved on to your second startup, which was Love Space. And tell me a little bit about the journey you had there. Yeah, so there was a there was an, like I said, there was an MBA in between, and then um, you know I, I, I was thinking, okay, well, this is almost potentially the last chance. If I do want to get back into that corporate space, do something a little more mundane and predictable, then sort of post MBA is the best way to to do that. It's a good entry point back into those programs. Um, but uh, yeah, and yeah, you know, I did. I did some interviewing with the likes of McKinsey. Um, I, I didn't get that role, but uh, it just it just made me reassess things. And I, I got speaking with with Brett again um, from Streetcar, and he was just building Love Space. 
Um, it's a sort of a lot of, a lot of parallels with, with, with streetcar, uh, similar philosophies, the idea of disrupting an industry that's, that's stagnant, old fashioned, um, introducing tech and flexibility to the, to the storage industry. So instead of, you know, having to pay for a large storage unit and lugging your stuff back and forth and paying for all of the air within that unit, um, the, the idea was to pay by the box by the month and we collect and deliver across the country the next day. Um, so again, I thought, well, look, you know, we've done it once. Brett knows what he's doing. Um, you know, clearly there's, there's something in this. Let's, let's go again. And I, I did feel like I had, like I said earlier, I did feel like I had to have that, that second experience. There were some things that I didn't get exposure to, um, in, in the streetcar experience, specifically the fundraising process, um, and, and really getting the opportunity to, to build a team out myself personally. Um, that I, that I knew I'd, I'd probably have a better chance of, of doing within, within love space. Um, so it's sort of a, a no brainer to do it. Um, and it ended up being a, a huge success and, and, and a great experience. And, and perhaps most importantly for me, it, it just filled in all of those, those gaps that I felt were, were missing. And did you feel at any point, did you, I mean, did you feel energized going through the journey again, albeit with say different responsibilities? Or did at some point you feel like, I'm back here again, you know, struggling with difficult phone calls and, you know, whatever it is, all the, all the sort of growing pains of a, of a startup. Was ever, there ever a moment where you were like, oh, I, I, we got past this last time and now we're back here again? <laughs> many, yeah, many, many a time, Gary. Um, yes, look, uh, that, that, that's inevitable in a, in a startup environment. Um, and there are plenty of days where I was lugging boxes around a warehouse or, or driving a van and, you know, collecting boxes from, from students um, across the country, that, that certainly I was thinking, "Gosh, come on, you know, you're, you're 30 now, you've got an MBA. What are you, what are you doing here?" Um, but I think you, you know, you could cast my mind back to to, to the experience at Streetcar and, and know that it, it is all worthwhile um, as, as long as you generally feel like things are going in the right direction. And I think that's that's the key to this. I think if if you're doing all of that stuff and you're standing still commercially, operationally, then that becomes a huge drain. But you can always deal with all of that kind of stuff. You can you can deal with being overwhelmed operationally, deal with, you know, an influx of or an overflow of customer service requests if you know that that's because you're growing and things are going in the right direction. It's when you're doing all that stuff and gosh, you know, the, the orders are trickling through and it's a real hard graph, that's when it gets you down. But the, the, there's nothing that, that gets you up and builds the energy like like growth. And I suppose again, we were lucky to have that same uh, that same curve with with Love Space as we did at Streetcar. And tell me about the characteristics of the culture of the team within those businesses that made it so successful. Yeah, there are many. I've been fortunate to have very good cultures in in both. Um, and I think I didn't have much of a role in, in recruitment at Streetcar, but I, I certainly did it at Love Space, and I think I really pride myself on, on being able to identify people who are right for the different phases of the company's journey um, and, and generally do really well out of hiring young, hungry, smart people. Um, and you know, generally people who are kind of like myself um, looking to ultimately start their own business. And I think that's something that perhaps some startups, some founders, um, you know, might not be tempted to do because you know they they fear that they they're in it just to to learn and, and and to go away you know two three years later and, and start their own business. But for me, those are exactly the type of people you want 
because they are there for the for the right reasons. They're not there just to go um, sort of in a very linear fashion up the up the ladder. They're there very quickly to to roll their sleeves up, absorb as much information as possible. They need this to be a success for them, so that you know the next thing that they do is is that much easier. Um, so yeah, you know, culture that is that is hungry, energetic, um, you know, goes above and beyond in customer service has been critical in in both. I think you know, going back to two thousand five, two thousand six, when streetcar was was first launching, I think. You know, Brett and Andrew really had a, a clear view for for what they wanted it to be, what it wanted to sound like from a brand perspective, and it was quite revolutionary. You know, at the time, everything was quite stuffy and and corporate, and and customer service wasn't what it is today. I think in this country back then, um, so it was quite easy actually to to stand above um, your your peers and, and and the rest of the industry. Um, so yeah, a, a culture and a team that understood that no matter what the customer really is, is first and, and is able, you know, people who are able to think on their feet, not say computer says no. Um, and people who generally are, are comfortable with ambiguity of a startup environment, because if you're not, then you, you're really going to find a struggle. And I, I talk a lot about what builds resilience in people, the characteristics that give you resilience. And we love, as we go through the conversation, I'm keen to understand more from your perspective, you know, particularly in the more recent startups as well. What what builds resilience in 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 people? So we'll, we'll come to that. Let's move on to your next project, which was the first one that that you built and developed yourself. And I remember when you launched it, <laughs> I was like, I can't believe this is a business. Um, I can I can see it's in need, but you turned it into um, a really successful business. So to talk about what Shepherd was where and where it came from. Yeah, so the sort of the common thread between Streetcar, Love Space and Shepherd is, you know, the person I've not yet mentioned, uh, Carl August Amel, uh, a high net worth Norwegian uh, entrepreneur. Um, he put the first money into Streetcar as an angel. He put a lot of money into into Love Space and sort of was the inspiration for the, the storage side of things. Um, and when, you know, I decided I was going to, to leave Love Space, um, I, I connected with with Carl, and um, he's he's always got a, a short list of, of crazy ideas ready to go at any at any time. Um, and he introduced me to a couple, and, and one of those was was Shepper. Um, and I thought it was a really really interesting concept as as he presented it. This this idea that um, you know there there are a lot of assets out there, and um, sort of the current means by which people are checking on those assets um, is is very expensive, um, and you know, it's often. Security companies going to check on warehouses or people's second properties, and you know they're traveling a long distance from a hub to people in a car. They're getting to that asset. They're walking around it. They're then writing on the piece of paper that everything's okay or a window is smashed, and then they're posting that letter through the letterbox of the property that nobody's at. So you know, plenty of opportunity to to create efficiencies, lower the cost, and just generally improve the, the experience from a tech standpoint. Um, but I think really we started out, and perhaps this is sort of where your confusion initially lay when you first heard about it, along with pretty much everybody else I introduced it to. Um, you know, the, the initial target was B2C. So it was people with with holiday homes, um, even you know, go check on my boat in a marina. Um, and and we started marketing that day one. And it, it didn't really resonate. Um, we, we didn't get many orders through that. So then we decided to to pivot very quickly to, to B2B. And, and checking on on businesses' physical assets, um, and and then just very quickly realizing actually it sort of goes beyond 
bricks and mortar and there are, you know, there are car sharing clubs as we know. There are bike, bike schemes. Um, there's outdoor advertising boards. There's products in store. Um, there's, you know, Thames Water, for example, needs to check on their, their sewers or their drainage. Um, you know, electricity companies have to check on their pylons and all of these checks need to be done on a frequent basis. Um, and they actually, for the most part, can be done by anybody. They're not complex checks. So to give you an idea, we've checked every bus stop in, in London a few times. Um, and really, you're just going to see that the light works. There's no graffiti. They're clean. Um, and anybody can do that. So, so And I think this was the thing for me that, that and it's a great lesson of sometimes the best business ideas are incredibly simple. So, you know, the, the, I remember you, the, what it sounded like in my head was there are things that need looking at. Mm-hmm. And then I've got people who can look at them and say that they're fine. And in, in, in essence, that's, and I was like, I get that, that, that's brilliant, but don't people already do that? And then you said, no, but they don't. Um, and, and I was like, wow, you know, and, 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 and you created a business that was people going to look at things and saying, you know, mainly saying that they're fine. Yeah. But of course, as you say, it, within there is a really pretty significant market opportunity. And, and I think that's a great lesson for uh, upcoming entrepreneurs who, mm. you know, I talk to a lot of people who've got an idea that's really complicated because yeah. they feel as though the simple stuff must have been done by now. Therefore, to win, I've got to do something mm. pretty advanced, complicated, you know, I don't know, with AI, machine learning, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But actually, often there are, there are opportunities out there that, that don't have to be so complicated and maybe less complicated can grow more quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's ultimately just doing something better. I mean, streetcar was just a better way of car rental, love space, better way of doing storage, shepherd, better way of, you know, checking on assets versus having a large team of people going out and doing things. It's not, it's not revolutionary. So who was doing your looking? There's a crowdsource network of people. So people like you and I, who, who download our app, um, we call them our shepherds, hence the name shepherd. So got about 100,000 shepherds on the, uh, on, on the app at the moment. Um, you know, spread all, all over the country and, and in a few countries abroad as well. They download the app, they go in, they see what's around them, they select the jobs they want to do, and, uh, you know, you can make a few pounds on your way to, to get a coffee. Amazing. And, and what, was the, what was the growth curve of that business? So, obviously, you started, you on your own, maybe in a boardroom with a leaky roof. I don't know whether you, whether you managed to find a room without, without leaks, but, but what did it look like for you scaling that business from 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 scratch for the first time yeah it was exciting so i i, I wasn't alone I, so I started with carl and i started with my uh, my good friend uh, jan van alter uh, we've been talking for a long time about wanting to do something together so i think you know very important to have people around you uh, there's probably a whole other podcast around starting a business on your own versus starting with other people but um you know i couldn't have done it without without them um but it was you know certainly different i'd always had you know <clears throat> someone else there you know the, you know we had steve falwell at, at, at love space who was the ceo there that i was working alongside um obviously brett and andrew at the streetcar so this was really okay i'm in the hot seat now and you know the buck the buck stops with me so i think that took some some getting used to um but yeah things for the first few months you know we were developing the product we were going down that b2c route things were were slow and i think you know it was getting frustrating and we would start to think hey maybe maybe this isn't going to fly um and it, it wasn't until we sort of well we, we brought in our first hire who was fantastic tora brooks uh, we brought her in to, to start doing sales for us 
Um, and we said one week, hey, look, just try having, you know, doing some outreach to the potential businesses that have some assets that are scattered and let's just see what the, what, what the response is like. And she ended up, you know, getting, uh, one of the biggest, you know, bike scheme, uh, clients in within, within a matter of weeks. And then that just built momentum from there that allowed us to, to scale the, the Shepherd network because we had jobs. You're always trying to manage those two things in, in equilibrium. Um, and then we got the big Airbnb management companies as well. So we were going into properties and checking the condition of those between guests. Um, and then we went to, you know, ended up doing jobs across 22 different countries, uh, within, within a year. Um, and then we joined Founders Factory, Brent Hoberman's program. We got money from Aviva and it just, everything just moved. In, incredibly quickly. Um, there wasn't really time to, to pause or, or reflect on it. But yeah, with, with, with hindsight, it was quite the, quite the curve. And how did it feel for you being in that hot seat when it was growing at that kind of pace? Did you feel in control? Did you feel sometimes a bit overwhelmed by everything that was happening? I think that was where the you know the, the groundwork at Streetcar and, and Love Space paid off it did, because it just felt it felt natural. Um, okay, ultimately, I was the one that was having to make all of the decisions. But I think I I thrived in in that in that environment. The idea that I wasn't actually having to get anybody else's buy in, and we can make those decisions on the spot was was quite liberating and, and enjoyable. Um, and all the other stuff, I just recognized as temporary chaos. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I I always tell everybody. And they're probably bored of hearing this, but uh, you know, just aim for the middle somewhere um, in, in those first couple of years of a startup's life. I think you know, don't don't celebrate the the wins too much because there's there's, there's a low the very next day, and don't get too low when that that client backs out of the deal because there's going to be a high the next day. So if you can just maintain the equilibrium, that's uh, that, that's the best place to be. That's really good advice. And how did your leadership role start to change as you're going from you know the beginning? you with a couple of other people through to, you know, leading a bigger team, something international, you know, a lot of external stakeholders you're responsible for. How did, how did that change your role as a CEO, the kind of things you're having to worry about? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it definitely evolves. Um, you're having to start to, to delegate things, um, which I'm absolutely delighted to do. I have no problem handing over power or responsibility. I think you need to be able to do that, empower people to make decisions. I, I never want to be a, a micromanaging leader who's responsible for all decisions. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely changes going from being in a very small room together where you can just quickly say something and, and, and the whole company knows what you're thinking um, to all of a sudden you're in a larger office and then you're getting different groups and then you've got an office where there's two levels and all of a sudden there's you know, divides. That's that start appearing. Um, so yeah, of course you do have to adapt your approach and you know move from a more hands-on leadership style, getting stuck in with with everything to, to delegation and, and sort of more of a, a figurehead role. Um, but I think towards towards the end of my time as as CEO of, of Shepherd, you know, it started to become basically, you know, one-to-one meeting, one-to-one meeting, just back to back throughout throughout the day. Um, and that's, I guess, inevitable once you start having head of functions, um, that, that that's what the role evolves to. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it certainly changes very quickly, but I guess at the time you don't, you don't notice quite how, how quickly that, that is evolving, um, because you're just so caught up in it all. And we're here to talk about your unlock moments, this moment of 
remarkable clarity in your career journey. And for you, something about understanding the sort of stage of business and the, the kind of leadership that is really you at your best. So tell me about how this came about and how, how you came to find this clarity about the, the, the environment in which you're really at your best as a leader. Yeah, so I think, you know, when I, when I, when I reflect and, and think back to sort of earlier on in, in, in my career in this mystery car and love space experiences, I felt this, this idea, this burden that when I do go on to start my own business, I'm going to have to take that thing all the way from, you know, myself and my co-founders in a room through to however big this, this business may well end up, end up being. And I think a lot of founders feel that pressure, uh, because that's sort of the, the example that is, that is presented. Um, and that's, that's, that's quite a burden to, to, to think that you have to be as good of a, of a leader, as good of a manager of, of two people, um, as you might be 200 people. Because there's a, you know, there's incredibly different dynamics and not to mention every, every size of business in between those two points. Um, so I think I identified in myself quite early on that I really like that early phase stuff. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking sort of, you know, one to 30 people, get the first clients in, build a team, build processes, build operations, get funding. Um, and then I just, they found that I don't enjoy that, that later stage quite as much where it's more about, okay, now let's grow the company by 20%. Let's improve efficiency by 10%. Um, sort of that, that tweaking doesn't, it just doesn't excite me. And I think it took a long time for me to, to acknowledge and, and accept that because I felt that you're, you're almost not allowed to say that. Um, because, you know, you're in this thing, you built it. Why would you not want to keep, keep going? Um, so I, I guess the, the unlock moment for me was, um, you know, I was at an event and there was a, you know, renowned CEO speaking who talked about this idea of identifying where you are on a one to 10 scale, um, in terms of sort of what stage of business, um, you, you operate in, where you thrive, where you're best at, with the idea being that sort of the startup phase where I operate is sort of a, a one to two or one to three phase. And perhaps, you know, nine to 10 is working in a, in a, in a large corporate. Um, and I think it was the first time I'd heard somebody else say what I had been thinking. Um, and it just sort of reaffirmed in my mind that I said, okay, well, maybe this is a thing. It is okay for me to say that that's just the thing that I do. I, I do that phase and I don't need to do the whole spectrum of a, of a company's life. Um, and also just didn't think that that was something that you could do. I didn't re realize that it was, you know, a career because effectively you have to start something and then do it all over again. And, and would there be a, a demand for something like that? Um, but I've, I've since learned that that is okay. Um, it, you know, there are opportunities and, and plenty of them to, to do exactly that by way of sort of business incubation, um, you know, building something up, doing what I'm best at. And then, and then frankly, as an investor in that business, it's, it's in my interest for it to, to continue to thrive. So therefore, why would you not bring in the person who is best at that next phase? Like by all means, take it off my hands, go and go and grow it. It's, it's in my interest. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's taken a while to, to, to realize that and, and be comfortable with that myself. And, and also I think there's still a lot of taboo within the, the startup space, within the investment space, um, that, you might not be the person who's at that company that they're investing in in 10 years. Um, I think you still very much need to sell this idea that you're the next Zuckerberg 
Paul Musk, and um, you're in it for the the hype and long term, and you know that's that's reflected in the way a lot of share contracts are, are structured and, and tying the person in. I just think it's it's slightly slightly outdated, um, and, and I'm hopeful that uh, it, it's something that might start to to change over time. It's very interesting what you articulate is a very common trip hazard of leadership that I come across an awful lot when I'm coaching senior leaders because. You know, people as they go through their career look up to people they've worked with, you know, uh, worked under often or, or, you know, sort of leaders in the public eye. Uh, many of whom, most of whom are, are there and are, are influential because they've been very successful or they've, they've grown things to, to a scale that it's sort of, you know, hit, hit, hit the public uh, uh, awareness to a much higher level. And that creates this sort of bias to say, well, you know, if I imagine the people that I look up to, they are inevitably not at level one, two, three of the life cycle of the business, as you describe. Um, and also people look at people ahead of them or people that inspire them and they think, well, I need to be like that to be successful. And, and that um, goes counter to the idea that you, are, you have a unique set of talents and strengths and skills. So, you know, it may be that, for sake of argument, Elon Musk is a very successful business leader. But he's different from you and he's different from me. And for you to be at your best, it's about you understanding your natural talents and strengths and how you lead. And, and very often when I'm working with senior leaders, it's about helping them to understand, for the sake of argument, for the way they lead at their best is going to be leading with communication or high empathy or um, high competition. But for somebody else to lead, they're going to lead with high command or they're going to lead with high analytics and actually a lot of people you know they'll 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 look up to somebody that's been very successful that they've worked for who was very analytical and they say well i'm not very analytical therefore i need to become more analytical but of course you could say well i need to bring more people into the team who are analytical because that's not that's just not me so do, do you feel more today that you have greater clarity than you used to as to the environment in which you're at your best, not only at the company stage, but also the type of role you play, the way you lead, the way you influence? Well, definitely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, another thing in terms of being true to myself is identifying what kind of leader I am um, and, and, and being true to that. I think, um, you know, just to throw it in the mix, you know, on the sort of introvert, extrovert spectrum, I'm more introverted. And I think um, a lot of people might not think that when they meet, meet me because I've got to put the high energy on. So it is a bit of a poor performance being a leader and there's some stuff that still doesn't come as, as, as naturally. Um, but I think if you flash back 10, 15 years, you, you still very much did have that archetypal leader who was type A, who was extroverted, who was single-minded and, and, and loud and, and perhaps not a, not a great listener. Um, so I think that was another thing that I, I couldn't see past um, I didn't have too many great examples of people who are more like me leading businesses. Um, but I've, I've since learned that uh, just being myself, uh, being um, trustworthy, respectful, just all, you know, all those, those qualities, building respect, the respect of the team and, and leading in my own way, in my own style, um, is, is effective. Um, and, and there is no one way to, to, to lead a business. Um, so I think that's, I think that's something that I've, yeah, 
it's not accepted, but I've, you know, become comfortable with and, and no longer feel the need to, to try to pretend I'm, I'm, I'm something that I'm not. And that therefore has made me that much more effective, I think. I was going to say, what, what changed, what's changed for you after you found this clarity and, and, and being, being comfortable with this is the place where I'm really at my best? What, what, what's changed? Um, I think it's a sort of lightening of the the, the shoulders for sure. Um, just you, you're able to to really give everything of of, of yourself um, rather than trying to be something that you're you're not. Um, so just really, you know, go go full steam ahead with with what you think you should be and 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 where you're best. Um, and it's also just you know certainly in terms of understanding what phase of business I I enjoy the most and where I feel that I'm best. Um, it, it certainly created clarity when it comes to what the next steps of, of my career will be, um, and, and where I best operate. And I think, um, you know, I certainly see myself further down the road trying to impart of as much of this, this knowledge on, on other people who are going through a, you know, a, a similar journey. Um, and I, and I think I can almost live vicariously through, through other people's early stage journey. So perhaps instead of, you know, being myself repeating the the one to two or one to three myself because that's certainly not sustainable for for too many more years. Um, I can get that same kick out of supporting other people going through that that journey and, and sort of passing on that wisdom. So bring me up to, right up to date with with Ponche. So so tell me about Ponche and, and what you're doing there and what that journey's been so far. Yeah, so 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 Poncho started um, through my entrepreneur residence at, at Camet Ventures. Um, as you mentioned, Camet Ventures is a is a venture fund backed by AXA, the the insurance company. Um, and the way that they operate is they dedicate a huge amount of resource and desk research to um, to exploring different spaces. So you know, quite different to what I've done in the past, where sort of we ha- we have an idea and then we 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 go test it in the wild. They will not do that <laughs> you know they they will they will work from their desk to to understand a space in a, in a really deep and detailed and scientific way before taking that that plunge so they had been exploring the uh, the, the childcare space here in the UK and you know not not too many surprises the conclusion was it's extremely expensive and there's a lack of supply um so that was a starting point and you know we, we determined we wanted to try to do something about it um with with Poncha um, so really the sort of the high level intention of Poncho is to help parents, um, access more affordable and accessible childcare. Um, and so we, we do that by way of a couple of different levers, one of which is bringing corporates into the fold, um, and, and getting them by way of employee benefit to help subsidize the cost of their employees' childcare. Um, but the really big thing that we're working on right now is, is tapping into, to government funding, um, that's available for, for parents, but is either very difficult to access, quite clunky, um, or it's going unused. Um, so to give an example, there's one scheme, tax-free childcare, whereby there's one billion pounds available a year, and only 250 million pounds of that is going used by parents. So we are developing something that's that's very cool. Uh, I can't talk too much about it right now, but it's uh, it's, it's going to be live in a in a month or two, uh, whereby we're we're just making it super easy to to access that that funding. So who are the people who should you know, find out more about Poncho and, and dig into what it is you're doing. Who are your who are your ideal customers? 
So we are going to be looking to work with um, sort of the, the childcare provider ecosystem. So anybody that um, you know offers childcare, holiday camps, tuition. There are about hundred thousand um, offset registered providers in the UK that can they're eligible to accept these type of payments. Those are the people that that we want to be speaking with. Um, and also, we're going to be doing a fundraise around this this summer. So we'll also be on the on the fundraise trail in a in a month or two. Come back to this 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 question of resilience. Then, so you know, you're 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 back in an environment of of you know getting a product to to market, building relationships, and and you know you've been there before, but 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 now in a different context, in a different mm-hmm. market, and obviously you know your your role's developed with with all the experience you've gained. What is it that you think gives you that resilience to to go again? That's a good question, Gary. Yeah, you know, I question sometimes if I do have that <laughs> that resilience. Um, I don't know. I think you, you you do just develop an incredibly thick skin. You 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 have a very good filter that you you develop in terms of being able to filter out what what really isn't important and, and what is. You just become incredibly good at, at prioritizing your your thoughts um, and and what you should be be focusing on. Um, you know, my, uh, my my wife questions how I'm able to to sleep at night with everything that's going on. Um, and I say, well, look, if you, you know, if you're not going to be doing anything about it right now, unless you're going to go write that email or, or do that thing, then the most important thing you can do right now is sleep. Um, so I, I do just, I am able just to switch off, which I'm, I'm pleased that I'm able to, to do. Um, but you know, it's, it's, and were you always able to do that or is that something you've, you've learned to compartmentalize better? I think it's, it's gotten better. It's gotten better. You just, you just, you, you cannot possibly think about all the things that, you could be thinking about or that could go wrong as a startup founder. There's too many. There's just too many that there's no point thinking about any of them, except for that thing that you need to focus on in that in that moment. I know it sounds incredibly simplistic, but I fortunately been able to train my my brain to do that. Um, but beyond that, it's team, it's family that helps sort of give you give you that 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 support um, and and you know, there's, there's nothing best than having a, a team around you to, to support you when, um, you know, things are going so well and to, to celebrate with when things are going well. And how, you know, with your experience going through that journey personally, how do you sort of see the team around you that you're building who maybe haven't got the experience that you have in these kind of ventures and helping support their resilience as they go through that same journey with, with the business you're leading? Yeah, I think that's that's incredibly important, and hopefully, sort of a lot of leading by example. Um, and I think you know you, you you've got to you know, display a sense of of, of calm. And, and I think for the most part that that does rub off. I think if if you're coming into the office and you're in a great mood one day, and then you're in a questionable mood the next day because you just had some bad news. I mean, the, the amount of times I've just had a terrible call or terrible board meeting or whatever it is, investors just fallen out. And you've got to walk through that office door, um, and you, you can't let it show. You got to, you know, you do just have to put on the face because you know that you can't let it impact them. You've got to be that. You've got to be that buffer. So I think, you know, for the most part, it is sort of protecting them against that, allowing them to, to do their jobs, um, and, and hopefully them seeing seeing that as, as sort of an effective way of, of, of coping with things, and, and perhaps that's something that they they learn over time. But I think also just checking in with them on a, on a frequent basis you know not not just about their role or what they're doing but you know how how are they doing where where is their head um and, and just having sort of an open and, and transparent um relationship and, and dialogue with them 
is legacy important to you? Uh, no, not really, Gary. I, I gotta say, I don't. I don't think it is. I, I don't know. I'm not. I don't have much of a an ego. Um, I think the legacy that I enjoy the most is seeing people that have worked with me doing great things um, and and implementing things that they've they've hopefully learned from me or you know opportunities they've had because they've had the experience with me. I think that that's the thing that I like. I think if you're not seeing that. From the people that have worked with you, then I think that's that's potentially a reflection that you, you you've not done that well. Um, but if you are seeing that, that I mean, that's what lives on. It's it's nothing to do with me or specifically anything that I've built or, or whether it's been a success or not. And if you were talking to you know today a new graduate coming out of university and thinking about you know I could go into some stable, successful role in a big company. Or I've got this opportunity to do this thing that feels high risk with a group of three people in a room with a leaky roof. What what what, what would you say to them? What what if you not necessarily advice, but but you know, what, what, how how would you mentor them? I think it's a tricky one. I think it's a tricky one. I don't think it's it's that straightforward. Um, look, I've got friends who started in the corporate space who are still in the corporate space. They love it. They enjoy it. They love the certainty. They know where their role is going. They know what their paycheck is going to be in five years. Um, and you know, I would I would never encourage them to try to to do what we're doing. Um, and, and equally, people who are in roles like myself, you know, just never would work in, in a corporate environment. So I wouldn't necessarily say, look, you absolutely must do this because it's it's not right for everybody. It's it's just not. Um, but I I certainly would suggest if if you're on the fence at, at that age, that is the time to try as many things as you can. I mean, really, your 20s, you, you can afford to, to make a lot of mistakes. You can afford to jump around quite a bit. I think more so now as well. The, you know, I see CVs all the time and, and most are one and a half, two years at, at any one place. Um, I think perhaps, you know, back in my day, Gary, not to age us, you know, we would have looked slightly differently on a, on a series of short, short stints on a CV. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'd necessarily, force someone to to do it or try to push them in, into it but you know if they really are unsure about one way or the other then that is the time to to try it out and, and see what you think and what does it feel like for you when you're in that environment that for you is the perfect space what does it feel like to be you in that moment where you're like this is it i'm i'm exactly where i want to be doing exactly what i want to do with the right people with the right situation what does it feel like um i mean you just feel at ease you feel comfortable um yeah i think uh that's a good question i've never really really thought about it because it's just for, for me my work and my life you know and it sounds terrible to a lot of people they think oh that sounds awful but they are kind of one of the the same thing but i think that that's that's nice in a way that doesn't mean that I'm working every night through your technical. I'm absolutely not. I'm very good at work-life balance as it happens. But it doesn't feel like, oh my God, Monday morning, I have to do work. And then Friday, okay, now I've got my life. They are just the same thing. It's just a nice sort of blend between the two things. And I think that's almost what, what good feels like to me. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm working on a project that's that's one of many things that I I do within my my life, and I think if I ever felt 
like I'm doing work and it starts at nine o'clock and that's this thing that I do that I that I don't enjoy. Um, and it's at that point that I switch off my life and turn on my work. That's when I wouldn't feel comfortable. Um, but yeah, when things are going well, it just it just all feels like it's it's part of you know everything else that you're doing. So, what's coming up for you in the next sort of one or two years? Then, what, what, what do you want to be doing with Poncho and the team and 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 everything that you're 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 growing there? Well, we need to follow the same trajectory as 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 the other uh, the other startups. Um, you know, going through that phase that I that I enjoy the most, building building the team out, continuing to get funding, continuing to build the the infrastructure, the operations, um, everything that I enjoy. And then I think you know, as, as much as, as as I've said, I. I'm on this this cycle of starting from from the beginning. You you never do quite know if if, if maybe this is one that you know you you, you do stick around for a, a little bit longer um, than than anticipated. So yeah, I, I certainly don't set out to build something with 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 a given timeline because not everything operates to to a year or two years or three years. It, it depends on the the pace of the business, the way it evolves, what's required of that business. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not putting a, a timeline to anything. But um, I'm I'm really energized by this this idea. I think it's it's really exciting. It's very sort of relevant in the in the macro environment. And I think I you know I particularly enjoy the idea that it's it's also doing social good, um, which is something that I want to do more of in, in in future businesses that I'm involved in. Amazing. And where can people find out more about you and about Poncho? Uh, best to check out my my LinkedIn. So just search for for Ben Prouty. Um or you know. It's, Plenty of articles out there that I've I've participated in, so to give me a Google search. And, and Poncho, where they find where they find out about Poncho dot care C A R E. Fantastic. So we'll put those links in in the show notes after after the after the show. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead for serial entrepreneur Ben Prouty. It was recognizing that his natural talents and strengths lay in the scrappy early stages of startup growth and letting go of expectation that he should love leading through the entire business life cycle. Through that realization, he found his space where he could be truly exceptional, and in doing so, has intentionally designed a working life he loves. It's a great story and a perfect demonstration of the power of understanding your natural talents and strengths. Ben, best of luck with the continued success of Poncho, and thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you so much, Gary. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset, available in physical book, ebook, and audiobook formats. Follow me on Instagram and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Join me again soon.